0: This is a special edition of Behind the Mic with Audiophile Magazine. I'm Joe Reed.
1: Before we begin, let's get something straight. This is not a history book. I repeat, this is not a history book. At least not like the ones you're used to reading in school. The ones that feel more like a list of dates, and there will be some. With an occasional war here and there, a declaration, definitely got to mention that. A constitution, that too. A court case or two, and of course, the paragraph that's read during Black History Month. Harriet, Rosa, Martin, this isn't that.
0: You just heard an excerpt from the beginning of Stamped, Racism, Anti-Racism, and You, by Jason Reynolds and Dr. Ibram X. Kendi narrated by Jason Reynolds. It's a remix of Dr. Kendi's National Book Award winner, Stamped from the Beginning. Stamped from the Beginning is a highly acclaimed scholarly work that explores the construction of race and of racism in the United States. But Dr. Kendi wanted to make the ideas in Stamped accessible to young readers. And so he turned to Jason Reynolds. Jason Reynolds is a prolific author of novels for young adult and middle grade audiences. He's won a raft of literary awards, including the Kirkus Prize, the NAACP Image Award, the Coretta Scott King Honors, and his book Ghost was a National Book Award finalist for young people's literature. In fact, Jason Reynolds and Dr. Kendi met at the National Book Award ceremony. More importantly, Jason Reynolds has his finger on the pulse of kids, particularly urban kids. His stories do more than mirror their lives. He lays open their concerns, their everyday dreams and anxieties, and creates stories in a language that's familiar and lively. In fact, Jason himself switches up his style of writing depending on the book. Ghost was the first of four books in the track series. Long Way Down is a novel in verse. And Look Both Ways is ten interconnected stories about walking home from school. Recently, the Library of Congress named Jason Reynolds the National Ambassador for Young People's Literature. So Dr. Kendi reaching out to Jason Reynolds about taking on the project of Stamped, the remix, was not a surprise. If anybody could do this, it's Jason Reynolds. Jason's answer, however, was unexpected.
1: I said, no, because he had spent his life working on this. This was a tome and, and, and an academic sort of contribution, one that I think was one of the most important academic contributions, at least in the top five in the twenty-first century. It literally was a shift in the way that we talk about race. It, and I felt like to, to try to tamper with it would be a travesty. Because one, I don't have the intellect. I didn't think I had the intellectual capacity to even contend with what he made. It's a lot, and anyone who's read that book knows. It's a lot. And I struggled with it. I read it 10 times at this point, but I, the first read was like reading Beloved for the first time, right? It's tough. You know, he kept asking, and eventually I sort of broke, mainly because I realized that it was bigger than me, bigger than him. That what we were trying to do is ensure that the conversation around anti racism permeates every single sector of our country, not just scholars and academics and people who are thinking about race, but our children. Uh, that they have the vocabulary to shift culture as they get older, that they have the vocabulary to have informed conversations, less emotional conversations, to turn the discomfort into comfort, to turn the dis-ease into ease—all right? these things are, are were sort of what I was thinking about when I finally said yes. And of course, saying yes is the easy part; uh, the hard part is actually making it happen. <laughs> making it happen.
0: Well, this history—that is not a history. His book is so textured. And so complicated, and he asks you often to be holding opposing ideas at the same time, Mm. and I wonder how you just went about making it accessible for young readers without dumbing it down.
1: Yeah, so I read "Stamped" his his version, the original version, uh, as I like to call it, "Stamped Senior." I read it, (laughs) I read it through and through so many times, and what I realized in the reading of it is he's a he's a scholar, and that. The job of the scholar is to make sure that you provide enough cross-reference to not be refuted. But it doesn't mean that we need that cross-reference, right? The scholars may need it. But the truth is is that the average reader assumes that the person speaking is an expert. And so whatever you say, is it. if you say that these are the things that have happened for these particular reasons, the average reader says, okay, that's the way we all work, right? My mama say, orange juice is going to cure a cold. I just believe her because she's my mother and she has experience with curing colds, right? And so the so first thing I had to do was figure out which cross-references didn't need to be there. What could we eliminate? The other thing, though, is that he did me a big favor because I was struggling. And I, I want to make sure I'm clear that this was, this was the hardest thing I've ever done. And I was struggling with it, trying to figure out what do we keep, what do we, what do we cut, because everything is necessary, but how do we work this out? And he sent me a, a cheat sheet that said, here are the non-negotiables. Here are the ideas that have to be in this book. And here are a few of the historical moments that, like, these are non-negotiable. They have to be in this book. The rest of it you can fool around with, but these parts have to be there. And so that gave me a bit of a true north, right? That gave me something I could always sort of count on by saying, well, I know I have to talk about this and I have to talk about this, but I got to figure out how to get from here to here, right? I got to figure out what I'm going to use, whether it be devices, literary and poetic devices, whether it be personal stories and anecdotes, whether it be analogies. Like, I got to figure out how to get from here to here to make this thing flow, make it feel like music. And so I went through a few different drafts, just sort of get doing edited versions of his book, and it just wasn't working. And I remember going to New York to talk to our editor, Lisa, and she said, um, Jason, it's just not doing what we needed to do. It's not working because that's not you. And I said, well, yeah, it's not my book. And she said, yeah, but we hired you Like, the reason that he wanted you to do it is because he wanted you to do it. He wanted it to be you. He wanted it to be your voice, your style, whatever that thing, that intangible thing that you have that's only yours, your intuition, your gut, we want to do that. And I say, well, in order for me to do that, I have to poke fun at what an academic book is, which is why it starts with, this is not a history book. That's the reason it starts like that. It's me saying, like, this isn't that bogged down milk toast droning intellectual rhetoric right this isn't what this is going to be because this isn't what the conversation of race actually is in this country right it's it's life it's real life exactly right and and so this book has to feel and sound like real life like a real person uh, and that was my approach and then after that it was it was party time
0: yeah I can hear that in reading both books both um, stamped from the beginning and stamped yeah sometimes I think, The hardest things for people to really understand is contradictions, and the contradictions we all contain, where I can't be this and that, but I am this and I'm that. And boy, Stamped really, really talks about that a lot and points to certain historic figures in American history that we know about. Thomas Jefferson, which, yes, we do know, but others more surprising, W.E.B. Du Bois.
1: W.E.B. Du Bois had graduated from the best black school and the best white school, proving the capabilities of black people, at least in his own mind. Like I said, he was obsessed with keeping up with white people, running their race. But in his speech, he gave credit to Jefferson Davis. Jefferson Davis saying that the Confederate president represented some kind of rugged individualism as opposed to the submissive nature of the slave
0: yikes. I literally stopped cold on the street because I was listening (laughs) to it and said, what? Mm -hmm. Tell me how you approached grappling with that and, and, and giving young readers, listeners a chance to understand it is both A and B.
1: I think at the very beginning of the story, I wanted to figure out how to frame what was about to happen and what they were going to experience in the reading of this book. And so I take the concepts of segregationist, assimilationist, and anti-racist. And I I transmute them into these other concepts that we all know very well, especially if you're in high school, right? Which is sort of the hater, right? This person who hates you for not being like them. (laughs) The liker or the fake friend, right? The person who, who likes you because you are just like them, right? And if you deviate from that, they're not so certain, right? And then there's a person who loves you, the lover, who loves you for being just like yourself, Right. And those are the same three concepts. Now, when I lay those concepts out to build the framework, what I also say is every single person can be all of these things and usually are. And not only can they be all these things, they can be all these things in the matter of a single day, depending upon how you live your life and what the circumstances are and the context. Right. And that's not a new thing. That's the way it's always been. All of us are the hero and the villains of somebody's story. And, including our own, <laughs> including our own, including our own, and that, and that, under the weight of racism in this country, it is really difficult. Especially historically, it's been really difficult for even the best amongst us to hold tight, to hold tight to the aura of anti-racism. It's complicated because if you're, you're W.E.B. Du Bois or if you're Martin Luther King, it could very well be a matter of life or death. But it does not mean the decision that you make due to survival is any less racist even if it's meant to save your life, right? And and that's a complicated thing. It's no different than making a decision that goes against your moral judgment to feed your starving family. It's
0: complicated. It's very complicated. You also recorded it, and you recorded it brilliantly. Thank you. Um, Tell me about that experience. What was that like? Another
1: moment where I said no. <laughs> I don't. Listen, I, I, I'm fully aware of my my sort of strengths and my capabilities, and I try to stay in my lane as often as possible. But I, I, and I've i done audio recordings. I did A Long Way Down. I did for everyone. I've done a bunch of the ones whenever I've written a preface or a foreword or an afterword or an essay or, you know, I've done I've done it quite a bit. But for all those listening, it's no fun. It's just not, you know, I, it's a wonderful thing to have done, but it's not a wonderful thing to do. So I said no, and then the publishing company said, you know, we really think it would be really important and, you know, just for posterity, you know, for you to do it yourself. You know, they're like hinting at it, but it's not really a hint. It's like you're going to be the person to do this, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and then I said, okay. And, and, and honestly, that's done, and it's it's already kind of floating around to educators and things of that nature. I, I am grateful to have done it. I'm glad that it's my voice. I mean, I'm, I mean it's, it's my interpretation of the story, and, and it's my voice telling it. And I honestly don't even know what I was thinking to entrust anybody else with this thing that I toiled over for so long. I'm glad it's me.
0: And part of what you do in the book, the font will change, words will be bigger, they'll be bolder. You play with words mm-hmm. on a page so that it looks almost like a verse mm-hmm. occasionally. And you had to convey that with your voice.
1: Absolutely. I mean, and that's the reason why no one else should have done it, right? It, it's a little more complex and nuances are, are so deft and so slight that you kind of have to know where they are in order for it to come across. And so I'm, I was happy to have done it because now I, I could sort of see it and I could see those moments where I was playing around with verse or I was playing around with repetition and poetic devices. And, and I know what that's supposed to sound like and I know what that's supposed to feel like because it's me, right? And, and so I was able to sort of bring that to life, hopefully.
0: Do you and Dr. Kendi see Stamped, either the audio or the text, being a part of a school curriculum? Is that something that you had been hoping for?
1: Yeah, I think, I think for the both of us, we want Stamped to be perennial and omnipresent, in schools, right? We wanted to just be everywhere, in every school, in every classroom, um, every social studies class, every history class, every English class. Like taking a different approach to teaching history and and, and and having a different experience while learning it. What does it mean to, to be dropped down in the midst of a, of a conversation that you didn't know that you exist in? right that you now live on the continuum when it comes to race in America and we're going to and I'm going to put you right in the mix of it and you're going to have to contend with the conversation of history you're going to have to actually be a part of that conversation it's not being preached to you or lectured to you you're engaged in it you're you're sort of engulfed in it right i'm talking directly to you we're taking breaks man I'm challenging you to to or I'm asking you to take a moment to breathe and allow yourself to sit with the discomfort and that, that it doesn't make you unsafe. Being uncomfortable doesn't make you unsafe. And sort of allowing that wave to wash over the reader, but writing that in the book, take a deep breath, right? Breathe in this and breathe out that. Think about the words privilege that everybody is so afraid of. But to say, like, now let's let's sit with the word privilege and then let's explain uh, and, and give the information on where privilege, where the idea of privilege, specifically white privilege, comes from uh, historically. Like, I think if we can do it this way, then by the time they're 18, by the time they're 25, this will be woven into their psyche. It's a part of their lives in a way that so many of us in our generation still haven't been able to grapple with. It really pains me that so many adults still can't say the words white and black, that they can't, they physically can't say them without getting uncomfortable, without feeling the nausea in their stomachs. It's such a silly thing. And I want our children to be able to, be, to talk frankly about those things and informed so that they don't have to be harmful or uncomfortable. It just is about grappling with that, which is...
0: You end the book with breathe.
1: Don't freak out. Just breathe in, inhale, hold it. Now exhale slowly. Now.
0: You often end your books with, in a way, just holding out a hand to the young reader, you know, in the way Ghost ends, Mm -hmm. in the way Long Way Down ends, and in the way Stamped ends. It always seems like a gesture of holding out a hand. Yeah.
1: I think I have a lot of respect for our children. So much respect that I think it is, uh, I think it is gravely disrespectful to tie your books up in knots and give away all the answers and because I don't know the answers, not even to my own stories, let alone to something that's nonfiction, right? I don't know the answers. We're living, we're living in process, right? And so I always try to approach the endings of my books as an extension of respect, saying, I, "I respect you enough that I believe you have the ability and the intelligence to reason and to do a little bit of this work on your own." I've I've led you here, right? I've given you three hundred pages of information, and now I'm asking you to tap into your your imagination. Type tap into. Your moral and ethic type tap into your upbringing, your environment, your context. Tap into your pain, your trauma, your joy, and you get to write whatever comes next. That's always what I want to do in every single story: is put some of the onus on the reader. This is a collaboration; it's not just me. Now it's time for you to do a little work.
0: Yeah, and and then you you reiterate that in in the afterward to stamped which. Just made me so hopeful. Oh. I mean, it really, really did. The trust that you have—it made me rethink. Wow, mm-hmm. he really knows these kids, and if he has this confidence, who am I not to have this confidence? Yeah,
1: I really thank you for that. I, I, I wish that I didn't have to lean on them, but we do, right? I wish that that they didn't have the burden, but unfortunately, they will. And my job. Uh, somebody asked me recently, like, what do you, like, wh- where do you see yourself in that as an adult in this position? And my job is to be a beacon. I'm the lighthouse. You look for me when you want to know which way to go, but my job isn't to be the captain of the ship, right? That's your job, right? My job is to sort of make sure that you can be the captain, and make sure that you are trained to be the captain, make sure that you know how to steer a ship. But then after that, my job is to become the lighthouse to say, here I am if you need me. If you are looking for the light, look this way but you got to steer this ship. You got to be the captain, right? And I think we have, as adults, we have a really hard time with that sometimes, but I think it's what's necessary in order for us to move forward. Dr. King was was a young, young man. And all of our revolutionaries and world changers have been very young people. Snick. Snick, exactly. John John Lewis was 17. Mm -hmm. This isn't a new phenomenon, right? What I'm saying is history has told us this is the way it goes. So let me try to figure out how to fortify you Right, how to buttress you, how to make you, how to make you know and make you big, and then I'ma get out the way. I'll stand beside you. I'll be here. The lighthouse will always be on for you. I'll be here, but you get out on those on that, on that open water and you make it happen, right? You make it happen, and I think that that is always my goal. But but I have to be honest with them. And in that afterward, it says it's gonna take more than swiping on a screen. It's gonna take I'd more. Like to. It's gonna take more. And I got love for it. look. I'm I'm as addicted to this nonsense as everybody else. Right. And so I don't want to dismiss its power, but I I have to make sure they understand you're going to have to do a little more. If any generation can do it, because no generation has ever been this empathetic. None. We criticize them for being too soft. Right. They're so sensitive. And we criticize that as if the world couldn't use so much more empathy. They want to create a world that is more equitable for their friends who present as different genders for their friends. Who come from different places, who pray to different gods, they want to create a safe world for their for their friends. And we judge them for it. And what I'm saying is if that's the way you feel, hold on to that part of you and we'll be all right. It was lovely. Thank you.
0: Your own career is certainly a phenomenal one. Thank you. And it's it's so interesting when you've said you didn't read a novel straight through till you were seventeen. Mm-hmm. You were a reluctant reader, as they say, but you read poetry. I did. And wrote poetry, and Queen Latifah was a huge influence. Of
1: course. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) I mean, you know, people always ask, why didn't you read? And it's not just about, listen, yes, there were no books about kids like me. That is a truth. But even more than that, I don't know if we're always honest about the fact that sometimes when you're 13 and you got to read 20 pages before the good part comes, that's hard. Not because you don't want to read, but because it can get a little boring. We don't want to admit that, I mean, adults don't want to read 50, 60 page expositions. You know, I mean, I was talking to my buddy, Lisa Lucas from the National Book Foundation, director of the National Book Foundation, and she said, I give it 50 pages. If you can't get me in 50 pages, I gotta close it down, Right, like that's a very real thing. Oh,
0: completely, it's my you one and only life.
1: I don't have time to do this, yeah. right? And I think young people feel the same way. And so when I started to read, the reason I started to read anyway is because I was given Black Boy by Richard Wright. And then on the second page, he burns his mother's house now. And I was like, oh. Huh, I'm there. I'm, I'm there, right? That was it. I just didn't want to be bored, you know? And so I think in today's time, it's no different. Poetry was good for me because it was short. It was accessible. There wasn't enough time to be bored. There were 20 sentences, 10 lines, right? 20 words, right? I could get through it and I could turn the page and... And then you become addicted to the feeling of turning the page. And then you become addicted to the feeling of completing something. Right? And now you become a reader. And you can, and you can kind of reap the benefits of it. I tell people all the time, I don't care what you read. I get in trouble all the time because I, I tell people, either we're going to raise kids to love literature or we're going to raise kids to be literate. And those things are not always the same. And I care about literacy. And I, listen, I've, I've never read Herman Melville, and I'm not made worse for it. Right? But, but I can read and I am made better for that.
0: You started out as a poet, and then you switched, and, and you still do poetry, mm. because certainly Long Way Down is a novel and verse. But you your primary focus now, I think it's fair to say, is, is fiction sure. and fiction for young people. Why did you switch to fiction, and why focus on young people? It kind of happened. In, in the way life happens. In the way <laughs> life
1: happens. I mean, I was 21 years old when I got my first publishing deal with HarperCollins. A young poet and they were gonna publish my stuff and me and my buddy Jason, who's an artist, and we were working on these things together and making these really weird and innovative art and poetry sort of mash up books to figure out ways to use multiple stimuli to engage readers. We did not know there was a such category as YA or middle grade or any we didn't know anything about the industry. We were sort of knucklehead kids just making art. And when I got to deal with Harper, they categorized the thing that we were making as children's literature, as YA. Right, So that's how it originally happened. And my editor at the time, who's retired now, she pulled me to the side one day, and she said, one day you're going to write novels. And I said, no, I don't think so, because I, I just started reading novels a couple of years ago. It's a lot of words. I'm a little intimidated by it. I don't think I have the education uh, for that. And she said, oh, Jason, what I know about you is that your intuition will take you farther than your education ever will. And I'll never forget that. It's something that I, I think about every single day. And fast forward five years later, I was with Christopher Myers, whose father was the late, great Walter Dean Myers. Uh, Chris was one of my best friends. Uh, Walter was getting older, and Chris said, yo, man, like, who's going to make this work when my, when my father is gone? Uh, and I said, I don't know, you know. And he said, well, I think it's going to be you. I said, why would it be me? And he's like, I don't know, but why, why, why wouldn't it be you? You should try to write a novel. Uh, and I said, I don't know how to do that. And he said, uh, go read one of my father's books and see if anything happens. And so I went and I read The Young Landlords. Chemically changed me, right? It changed, it changed the way I felt about language and what I could do. It gave me permission uh, to be myself on the page, to break all the rules, and to really trust my intuition. I, I've been shooting from the hip from day one. This is all gut work for me. I don't know that much. I just know what feels good to me. I know it sounds right to me. And I started to write, and it became When I Was Greatest, and I never looked back.
0: You write from a kid's point of view always, and and you do it so well with Look Both Ways, which we should say a book of connected short stories yeah. about walking home from school. Mm. Oh, my God, even at my age, I was remembering what that was like. So many of those stories resonated with me. I appreciate that. You must talk and listen to a lot of kids.
1: I do. I mean, you know, you can't show what you don't know. Yeah. I talk to kids every day. I listen to kids all the time. I watch them as they move around the neighborhood. And, I, you know, I, I I watch how they sort of posture at this age and, and puff their chests yeah. out and perform, right? So much performance is happening, which I find so interesting and so entertaining and so human. You know, the the way that we create performative force fields for ourselves. It's protective, right? How do I protect myself? I pretend to be something bigger than I am or I pretend to be something braver than I am. And, I, and you watch it happen and you see moments where, where, the, where the force field cracks just a bit, right? And, and a little bit of their, of their youth, that innocence sort of seeps out. Uh, and it's,
2: it's a beautiful thing to witness. It was a freak accident, a moment that no one could have predicted. Because Satchmo Jenkins never, ever missed. Whenever a ball was thrown toward him, he was sure to snatch it from the air. He was known for this. But when Clancy had told him to go long and heave the football into the air, Satchmo had tried his best to extend his body, stretched out for it. But it was just beyond him. Overthrown. And when the ball hit the ground... It took the worst possible bounce right into Miss Adams's yard, where Brutus the Rotwater lived.
1: I remember who I was when I was 13 or when I was 16, 17. I, read, I remember my mom's stories, my older brother's stories, all of my friends. I mean, I grew up in a very colorful and, and interesting sort of household. And, and I tap into all those things when it comes to writing children. But the one thing I keep at the forefront of my mind is that children are human beings. And so I can't write them one sided or imbalanced, I have to write them as whole. Even at 10 years old, they're not half-formed things. They're whole human beings with whole worlds that exist in the 10-year-old world, right, through their 10-year-old filter, right? And that's what you're reading. You're reading, hopefully, you're reading nuance and and the complexity of a young life.
0: And also how all-encompassing that neighborhood is. I mean, that's their world.
1: I think we really underestimate the value of community and the beauty of community and how truly interconnected we all are. If I talk to you long enough, I'm sure we've got a mutual friend.
0: I bet that's true. Right? Like, there's a beauty (laughs) in that.
1: There's a weird thing that happens with human beings that we sometimes forget because we won't give each other an opportunity to just talk a little longer, listen a little longer, ask a few more questions, and then we'll realize that it is impossible for you to be my enemy because we are connected. It's impossible for you to be a stranger because we are connected, but in order to find the connecting point, we'll have to do a little work.
0: Ghost is another just wonderful, wonderful book. Did you know it was going to be a series when you started?
1: I did. I did. But I hadn't planned it out, which was the biggest mistake of my life. But I knew <laughs> it, it made for much more work than it needed to be, but I, I knew it would be four books. I knew it would be about these four four kids. I didn't have all of them fleshed out, but I, I had Ghost was ready to go. I knew what Ghost was, and then I had to figure out Patina, Sonny, and Lou. But Ghost is based on a buddy of mine from Southeast D.C., uh, that, that moment in the beginning of the book with his father is a moment that actually happened. That's where I, that's where I pulled that from. People always say, like, like that doesn't really—I'm like, well, that happens. Not only does it happen, it did happen to someone that I'm very close with. Uh, and then sort of building out that story based around that moment without ever revisiting the moment, which is important. Ghost is not led by his trauma. He isn't a kid who is, um, who is burdened by a trauma. He isn't a kid who is overwhelmed with this thing. His life is very different because of it, but he is still a child and he lives a child's life, right? The things that he's going through in school has less to do with his father and more to do with the fact that he doesn't have a lot of resources. But this thing isn't haunting him. We try to paint kids into this, like, kids. traumatized corner, right? And it's like, uh, kids are resilient. I was in the just They're say so that. resilient, yes. you know? And that's what you see with a, with a kid like
2: Ghost. When everyone had taken a turn, the coach started over and gave everybody a chance to give it another go to see if they could beat their first time. So Lou was up for another go. He did that same cocky swagger over to the starting line, did a few stretches, some jumps, and the lady on the other side of the track screamed again. The boy was just getting loose, and she was going off like he was doing something. The people around her looked at her like she was crazy, obviously annoyed. All of his teammates looked on. Some of them seemed to be bubbling with anticipation to see the mighty Lou run again.
0: I read and listened to Ghost. Mm. Guy, Guy Lockhart mm-hmm. is a great narrator of your work.
2: He's
1: one of my best friends.
0: Yeah. Now, how do you and Guy work together? Do you hear his voice sometimes when you're writing the books? No.
1: Guy, I've known Guy since I was like 15. <laughs> like, I grew up with Guy. <laughs> and so the reason, so I basically started to ask my publisher, I want to pick my own audio book. This is after *Born in a Black Suit. These stories are very personal to me, a lot of these stories. And I have a, a very distinct sort of way that it's supposed to be and sound. And so when I got a little bit of success and a little bit of leverage, I used it and said, look, can I introduce you all to somebody that I want to read these books? And they said, sure. And so I insert guy. And I called. I mean, I was at, probably at his house anyway in Brooklyn. I was like, hey, man, do me a favor, right? Would you do this for me? He's an actor for a living. And uh, he's like, of course. And, be, and I never have to talk to him about anything because he knows these people. He knows the stories. He was around for some of them. He knows the jokes. He knows the tone of my voice. He knows the way it's supposed to sound because he is from that world.
0: Oh, it's perfect. He really is perfect. It's He's amazing perfect. because you know when you like a book, you have a way it's sounding in your head, mm. and sometimes when a narrator comes in, you're like, whoa, 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 whoa.
1: Exactly. But
0: with Guy, I was like, oh my god, it's this exactly is fabulous. It. You
1: should, you should listen to him do Sunny. It's the best one.
0: Oh, I haven't. Okay, it's, I will. He
1: won, he won the the big award for that. one. Oh, did he? It okay. is. And at the end of it, they interview the two of us about our friendship. It's really that one. He,
0: I'm making a Knocks
2: it out the park. My father, well, he still doesn't want to be disturbed. And I don't want to disturb him in his work and his newspaper, and definitely not the puzzles, because the puzzles are our time. So, Diary, thanks for still being a friend. Something for me to bite down on. Something for me to whisper scream to, because sometimes I have too many screams up there.
0: When you think about how much competes for kids' time? You know, and hmm. again, we're back to reading, and come on. I mean, there yeah. are, there's so much competing for kids' time. Tell me about it. Yeah.
1: I, I, I think we're making a little bit of a, a mistake, though. I think there's an, over, an over-inundation of stimuli. They have everything right? in a way that we didn't, right? They have everything. So they have video games. They have cell phones and social media. They have YouTube and all the rest of the Internet sort of. Black holes, right? I mean, just so much to occupy their mental space. And what we do is we we fight against it, and I think that's a mistake. There's no winning that battle. Ain't no way. I think what we should do is work with it. I think that what you're seeing in, the, in something like Look Both Ways is me saying, listen, if I could figure out how to get them to read these 10 pages and it'd be a whole story, beginning, middle, and end, and tomorrow maybe they'll read another 10 pages, I'll take it. I recognize that their attention spans are getting shorter. I recognize um, that it's a lot of competition. Um, and so I'm going to meet them where they are, and then we'll slowly walk them up. My, if you noticed over the course of my career, my work has gotten shorter and shorter. Intentionally. Yes. Yeah. Intentionally. I'm really trying to provide something for them, right? I'm not, it isn't just about me doing my thing. I, have all my, I know all my friends are like, I write for myself. Cool. That's amazing. I don't. Right, That's great. As an artist, I get it. Trust me, I get it. When I sit down to do this, though, that's going to be published and put in a category for children, I'm writing it for them. And if I'm thinking about them and I'm writing it for them, then I have to meet them where they are. It's like I have to make sure they read it. And so there's a way for me to do this where I don't sacrifice the integrity, sophistication, or art and creativity of a story. I am a writer. I do love to be a writer. This is definitely about making sure that I'm producing something I can stand on and simultaneously be functional, Uh, and and actually be read by the kids that may not like reading.
0: Isn't it nice that you're the seventh national ambassador (laughs) for young people's literature? (laughs) Bravo. Thank you. So what are you doing over the next two years?
1: My platform is to come through the back door. Trust is a big thing with our young people. An adult telling a kid to read a book, uh, the kid is like, well, who are you? And why would I listen to you? And what do you know? Right? Like... I think it's unfair that we expect young people to believe us just because we have age on them or, or to trust us or to even respect us. All things must be earned. Everything. And especially respect. Especially, re- thank you, especially respect. And so, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to show up to these different places, rural towns, small town America, which is what I'm focusing on. Even though I'm a city kid, I recognize that even the, the most disparate city kid can walk to the store, can walk to the library. Right, Any kid in D.C. can get on the Metro for free. Right? Any kid in Brooklyn can get on the subway for free. Travel all over New York. But if you are living in only Illinois, if you are living in Seward, Nebraska, if you are living in parts of Kansas and Arkansas, parts of Montana, if you're living in southern West Virginia and Appalachia, it's a little more complicated for you to have some of these resources. It's a little more unlikely for you to see an author ever in your life because we don't necessarily go to these places as often as maybe we should. And so I will go there. And when I get there, uh, we will do interviews. First, they'll interview me, right? You interview me. I'll put the ambassador medal around your neck. You see, I'm the ambassador of children's literature, but I am not the ambassador for children. They are. They are the ambassador for themselves. And so the first thing I'll do is, is make sure they understand that. I put the ambassador medal around whoever's interviewing me's neck, and i let that child ask me any question they want. All questions are on the table. I do this every day in schools. And so we have that moment in public, a public moment where a child can ask me, all the questions he wants to know. How long have you been growing your hair? When did you start writing books? How much money did you make on the first one? Of course, I'll navigate the questions in ways, like my job as the the adult is to steer the questions to get to some of that, some of the meat that we got to promote reading and writing, right? But you do it in a way that feels cool, feels normal, feels a part of the conversation. And then after we do all of that, then we will have interviews with two children, maybe, or maybe me and a child, and I get to ask them questions. I get to interview them. And this will be in conjunction with StoryCorps. Right, And, and so we'll record it, and it'll be housed in the Library of Congress. And we'll ask questions like, what do you think people think about your hometown? And then I'll ask, what do you feel about your hometown? And maybe you'll hear a child say, I love it here. I love my father and my mother and my dogs. I love when I go help my father fix the car. I love going to church. Think about what it will feel like to hear the voice of a child, a child that you may have forgotten, a child that you believe you already know, and you hear that child tell you who they are, controlling their own narratives. My job, what I want to do as an ambassador, is take a sample set of the oral history of small-town America from the mouths of babes.
0: Oh, my God. I cannot wait to hear it. So we'll see. Jason, thank you so much. My pleasure. I mean, what a pleasure. And, and congratulations and many thanks, mm. truly many thanks, for the books that you write. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. That's Jason Reynolds. His book with Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, Stamped, Racism, Anti-Racism, and You, has just been released. You can read the review for Stamped and other books by Jason Reynolds at audiophilemagazine.com. This has been a special edition of Behind the Mic with Audiophile Magazine. Subscribe to Behind the Mic wherever you get your podcasts. And leave us a rating on Apple if you have a moment, because it does help people to find us. I'm Joe Reed. Good listening.